everybody. Welcome back to the show, Science, Facts, and Fallacies, episode 253. My name is Cameron English. I'm your host, as always. Joined again by Dr. Liza Dunn. Liza, so good to, to, Hi, to see you, or I guess speak with you. <laughs> hope, hope, hope you're well. How's life? Life's good. It's busy, busy, running around like a maniac, but that's pretty par for the course. Yeah, it's pretty great. World tour, and uh, it seems as if you're you're bouncing from continent to continent again. That's awesome. At, at least it seems awesome. Yep. It's pretty awesome. Okay. Very good. All right. Well, congratulations to whoever won the Super Bowl. I'm not sure yet, but whoever you are, good for good for you. <laughs> I'm not sure either. Is it is it going on now, or did they already win? Um, it's tomorrow. Yeah, it's, it's a sun. I'm not a football guy, so yeah, it's oh. it's it's tomorrow as we're <laughs> oh, recording yes. this. Yeah. <laughs> That's exactly right. Go go figure. I, I, I'm a hockey person. Yeah, yeah. I'm not a I'm not a football guy, but people are sending me text messages with they're like memes about the Chiefs, and I'm like, oh, that's so hilarious. But I've, I'm like, I, I guess whatever. <laughs> 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 it's all good. Anyways. Anyways, football's great if that's your thing. But let's talk about science. That's what we're here to do. So, three stories as always. First up, Elon Musk's Neuralink implanted in human who is recovering well, the billionaire tweets. Next up, another lesson from the news coverage of COVID, how poorly written headlines can adversely impact the lives of readers. And finally, weight loss drug boom raises host of unaddressed ethical and scientific questions. All sorts of intriguing stuff this week, Liza. But first up, let's talk about this story about Neuralink. This is by Emily Mullen, originally uh, writing for Wired. And as I'm sure most people have have heard, uh, the first human patient has received a brain implant from from Musk Mm -hmm. Company. It's called Neuralink. The company is Neuralink. The product itself is called Telepathy, which I think is kind of amusing that they went with that (laughs) as a name. As a name. So (laughs) Um, I think in this case, and there's been a handful of others over the last, I don't know, couple decades, that it, it's to restore movement or to allow people that are disabled to function with some sort of normalcy. And it's cool in this case because it seems like the technology is going to move forward in a way that it hasn't before. So they just started recruiting, Neuralink started recruiting patients for a clinical trial in the fall. Um, and they're developing a device called a brain-computer interface. I guess that's exactly what this thing is, Liza. You can explain the details. That's right. Yep, that's okay. right. Um, and now, this kind of creeped me out when I read it, but Musk says that the ultimate goal is to achieve, direct quote here, a symbiosis with artificial intelligence, which just sound no thanks, not interested, but I guess this is the goal. Now, but, but pr- primarily right now, because that's not possible yet, I guess, thank God. <laughs> um, the right. idea is to give paralyzed people a, a controller, a cursor, or a keyboard that effectively they can operate with their thoughts. I, th- I think is is the, yes. the extent of this. Um, so so the way this is implanted is um, with a surgical robot, or or I guess this is what they want is is they're going to use a surgical robot that's going to implant this thing in a region of the brain that controls movement and tension. Uh, the device is about the size of a coin, maybe like a quarter, I want to say, um, and it's designed mm-hmm. to record and transmit brain signals wirelessly to an app that decodes the signals. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's crazy. Now, now the things that have been done with this are, are pretty impressive in my mind. It's, it's allowed people that are paraly- uh, paralyzed to play video games, to move a robotic arm, and to write emails using just their thoughts. <laughs> so crazy yep. stuff here. D- dive in here, Liza. Tell us more about this. 
Well, so I actually think this is really interesting technology. And, you know, um, even though a lot of people are worried about it, it's, it's interesting to me because people who have no qualms about putting rapidly dividing immature cells into people's brains uh, and without knowing how to turn them off uh, for movement disorders like Parkinson's, um, I'll get real kind of worried about putting a, an implant like this in the brain. And I think it could be a real boon for people with who are quadriplegic. There's a, there's a case of, there, there's a type of quadriplegia um, it, that's called locked-in syndrome. So if you have a very, very, very high brain bleed or very, very in the back of your brain around the uh, pons area, you get locked in. So you're awake and alert, um, and sometimes you can only wiggle one eye, eyelid or eye. Um, the, I, the, the former editor of, I want to say, L magazine had locked in syndrome, had a big stroke with locked in syndrome and wrote a book by blinking his eye um, and then eventually died. But you are awake, alert and in there, but you cannot communicate in any way, shape or form. And that's really, really tragic for people. So um, for people like that to be able to have an ability to communicate with the outside world, it would be just life changing for them. Um, and I think also for, for quadriplegia, it's the same thing. Um, I'm not really crazy about the idea of, you know, chips, uh, you know, reading your thoughts and then getting broadcast out to the greater world. So I think you have to think about the, the risk of that. Um, but I do think that um, helping these people, and there are a lot of them, and a lot of them are would otherwise be young and healthy. So they've got a fairly long lifespan. Um, it would be, uh, it would be uh, a boon. Um, likewise, there's a lot of work going on at Washington University, uh, one of the... Uh, people that I trained with um, is working on similar things where he can help paralyzed people move. Um, and I think that that could be a really, really uh, groundbreaking thing. So I'm, I'm excited about this um, technology, uh, cautiously excited. Things can, you know, things can get to be careful with it. Uh, but I think it's pretty interesting. Um, and uh, obviously it's going to need to be a lot of long-term follow-up and things like that. But uh I think it's pretty fascinating. So I do want to talk about the potential for abuse because that's always a concern when mm -hmm. you come to a technology like this. But before we do, let's talk about the clinical trial that is, I guess, is about to start. What what are they going to be looking for? Like, what's the end point? Like with the vaccine, it's does it prevent infection or does it prevent severe disease or whatever? What are they looking for here? And what are some of the safety concerns that they might be on the lookout for as well? So they're looking for, well, to be honest, I am not 100% sure what the endpoints are that they're looking for, but I think that they're trying to see whether or not somebody can actually communicate using their thoughts. And once again, they've, I think they've enrolled the first patient. So I don't know, and it's only, they're going to be doing it over six years. Um, and I don't know what their stated endpoints are. Um, but if, if it is, turns out that they can actually think and that can and that thought can get translated onto a computer. Um, that that's that that shows that there's an ability to do that. Now there are experiments that I've seen where somebody can think for another person and make them move their arm. It's a great TED talk about it, um, which is which is uh, kind of fascinating as well. Um, but so I think that the, what they're going to do, the initial pilot part of this is they're, they're looking for volunteers for the study, and then they're going to see if this person can, these people can communicate with the computer. And it's interesting, I guess a way you could validate what there's, what's, what's 
going on in the computers, you could ask them questions and see if there's a reasonable response coming back and forth. So um, it's pretty fascinating. I want to say it was a couple of years ago now they were doing the animal studies and they were doing it on pigs. And Musk mm -hmm. said something in, in the news reports about that, about how little the brain bleeds when you stick a chip in it. <laughs> and Kevin and I, Kevin Folta, your uh, your predecessor, the alumni here at the at the podcast, we got such a kick out of that because of all the things you could say about this is, uh, you know, we, th we thought the brain would bleed a lot more, but it really doesn't bleed that much. <laughs> I'm like, that <laughs> no, doesn't... It doesn't. Unless you get into a blood right. vessel, it doesn't. Okay, so that doesn't yeah. instill much confidence, at least in me, of like, of like <laughs> how you're going to hype this. So, I guess what I'm getting at is, like, what could go wrong, um, and then where, where's the trade-off at? Like, at what point is the is is the risk yeah. too great? Would you say? Well, so yeah, it's like the risk with with any kind of surgery, right? So you have a risk of an infection. You have the risk of you know malfunction, getting it in the wrong part of the brain. And sometimes people's brains are wired a little bit differently. So we do deep brain stimulators in people who have Parkinson's disease, right? Um, and it, so that and you can hit a button and you can make the person move better while this is stim while the stimulator is on. So there's a lot of experience with implanting devices in the brain for diseases. So that's not particularly new. This is just a new sort of uh, new sort of avenue with this uh, uh, thing. So it's the regular regular things that you worry about: infection, bleeding, clotting, um, and then and then device malfunction where uh, the patient doesn't respond the way you would expect them to. So for example, um, uh, there was once a patient that got a, a deep brain stimulator for an essential tremor. And essential tremor can be very kind of, um, can be very uh, debilitating because you can't hold a cup of coffee and you're spilling it all over and stuff like that. So she had a benign essential tremor, got a deep brain stimulator, and uh, then every time they turned it on, she couldn't talk. So it, it was in the right spot, but her brain was wired a little way differently and she was unable to speak. So they had to uh, put it on, turn, turn it off. So it, it's those kinds of things that you think about with this. But since, since people have been putting uh, devices in the brain for a long time, I'm not quite so worried about that, that part of uh, the issue. Like I said, what I'm, what I'd be more concerned about is, you know, if I'm, able to broadcast my thoughts wirelessly and other people can <laughs> get into that, that, that would be, that, that's more concerning than the actual physical uh, components for me. Well, well, let's get to that. And I, I, this makes me think of the movie, the little Nikki, this Adam Sandler movie, if you guys have seen that, but <laughs> there's one scene where there's two characters and they're having like a mind war with each other. And Adam Sandler mm -hmm. keeps losing. Cause the other guy is like a more powerful demon who can control thoughts better. And so he's make he's making him <laughs> punch himself and slap himself and say awkward things, right? It's a pretty funny scene. But is something like that at some point possible with this where you could, you know, dictate how someone moves or behaves or, or you know, what what they do with the chip in their brain or or you know what I mean? So, something like that. Could it could it be hacked, yeah. I guess is what I'm saying. That's a very good question, and I am terrible with computers, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't know the answer to that question. But it, theoretically, I probably could. Theoretically, yeah, I guess it could. Yeah, if somebody else has got access to it. Um, but if you know, if if it's only you that's got access to it, and you're doing your computer in, interface, I think that uh, that's probably fairly low risk. Probably fairly low risk. Well, that's good to know. I've the, the closest thing I've seen to this is like 
it's there's only been a few examples, but like people will get a chip in their arm that has, uh, you know, like their their access to their work office or to their apartment building or something like that. And I always see they're, they're like, it's yeah. just so convenient. I I feel great about this. I'm like, you're so you're so dumb, dude. Like, what do you like? Yeah, I don't think I'd yeah. want to do what that. if they turn your chip <laughs> off? You know, like. <laughs> That's exactly right. Yes, that that's too much. But this is this. I think for the, for a the patient population that we're talking about, I'm not thinking. I don't think everybody should have this thing implanted in their head. But as a therapeutic device, um, there there are there is precedent for deep brain stimulators and other mechanical devices that, that have been put in the brain. Um, and I think for this population, it could really unlock um, a lot of uh, unlock them uh, and do some good. Yeah, at this at this narrow stage with this very specific use, it sounds like it it's a pretty important medical intervention. So I hope it I hope it advances on that front. Just Me not too. on that not on the, the the global control of not on the general <laughs> yeah, not on the general population. Yeah, part. yeah. I I don't think I don't think the risk of I think that the risk of putting chips into people's brains unnecessarily is is greater than than it is with this population. So for a select population, I think it's it holds a lot of promise. Yeah, yeah. Klaus Schwab should not have authority over how this is. No. <laughs> you like no. to eat some <laughs> bugs, right? No, you eat some. Okay. <laughs> My bad German accent aside. Let's let's move on here and talk about. Um, <clears throat> this story by Dr. Henry Miller, one of my colleagues at the American Council on Science and Health. This is an interesting one, Liza, because we talk a lot about how the media <clears throat> misreports topics, but we don't always talk about yeah. how there's a divergence sometimes between a headline and the story itself. And this is the case. So I believe this was last week. There was a CNN story uh, that came out here. And let me bring up this headline just so people get the context for for what we're talking about here. So the headline was... COVID shots may increase risk of stroke in older adults, particularly when paired with flu vaccines. So it's it's pretty alarming to see that. And this isn't, you know, natural news. This is CNN. So it's ostensibly, CNN, yeah. ostensibly a reputable news outlet. But uh, Henry says, um, I had two friends of mine, and he's he's a slightly older gentleman, to, to put it politely. So he says he had two friends who were are in this age cohort, you know, the, the elderly kind of a cohort, whatever you want to define that, like 65 and older, whatever. He says they both came to him and said, should I not get my COVID booster and my flu shot? Because apparently when people got these together, this is where uh, the elevated risk came from. Now, now Henry mm-hmm. goes on to say, you know, further down in the story, the, the article clarifies that the risk was abs- actually quite low. As uh, I want to say it was three, three cases of stroke and events that are, I guess, similar to strokes, but they're not, they're transient. They don't last. They don't, they don't leave long-term damage. And maybe you can talk about that in a second, Liza. Yep. I can talk yeah. about that. Mm-hmm. So, so three cases out of 100,000 vaccine doses. So this is an infinitesimal risk that we're talking about here. The article goes on to say, you know, if you get a bad case of flu or a bad case of COVID and you're old, you could have a stroke or you could have really serious consequences. So on balance, it's still very much a good idea to get, get a booster, get your flu shot annually. Um, That's and, right. and it turned, I guess what happened was, is the FDA initially said there might be something here, but then they went back and looked at the data and like, Oh no, 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 sorry. Right. It's actually yeah. much smaller. So, so, <laughs> Elaborate, if you would. So, yeah. So, there, so first of all, in terms of strokes, they're the, the kinds of strokes that are leave lasting damage. So, you get a either embolic stroke, which is which is which is a clot that goes 
from your carotid arteries or your or your um, atria from your heart. If you have atrial fibrillation, which is a irregular heartbeat that can make it sort of turbulent in the, the chamber, and that can make blood clot, and so it shoots off little clots into the brain. Um, and then you, you can also, from your carotid arteries, get uh, little little clots from plaque because of the arteries beating up into the brain. And then if you cut off the blood supply to the brain, to in the affected artery to the brain, you wind up having um, not enough blood supply and the tissue dies around it. So if it's permanently dead, that's called a stroke. Or, um, and then if it's, if it, if it, if the clot like gets dissolved or goes, you know, go gets past that little holdup, you may have symptoms that are similar to a stroke, but then they go away. So a transient ischemic attack is a, a very, very brief um, episode of strokes like sy uh, symptoms um, that, that is common. And they often precede stroke, um, especially if you have something like atrial fibrillation. Um, and so th that, that's what a TIA is. Um, so with this particular uh, study, they were looking at, I think I want to say they looked at, they came up with the idea that possibly three out of 100,000 people would would have a stroke with this combination of the COVID vaccine and the flu vaccine. But when they went and reevaluated that data, that, that, that actually turned out not to be true. Anyway, regardless, it's, it, and, and they've had five meta-analysis or five, I think it's meta-analysis, right, um, where they've looked at the same question and they have not shown any increased risk of stroke. The interesting thing is that the mRNA vaccines um, are not the vaccines that were associated with, with uh, clotting problems. Um, they, the, the other uh, non-mRNA vaccines uh, got that signal. Uh, so, so they were looking at the, the, the confounding factors about this. Is they were looking at an elderly group. I think they, they were over 85. Um, and so you're going to be more prone to strokes and TIAs anyway in that age group. Um, they were, they, they, when they actually examined the data in detail, it sounds like the signal actually went away. But what it is, what is good about this, um, even though the headline is misleading, what is good about this is it tells you that the FDA and CDC are really paying very close attention to potential side effects of these vaccines. Um, and they take it seriously, unlike a lot of the anti-vaccine um, advocates or activists are, are saying. So they, nobody wants a vaccine to cause harm and they're paying attention to this and, and looking at it in detail. And I think the weight of evidence shows that there is not an association between these vaccines and stroke. Very comforting. Obviously, nobody wants a stroke, I don't think. What else is interesting, though, is it, it, talking about headlines, for doctors, when they're reading papers, they often read the abstract of papers, which is like a detailed headline, right? And there'll be claims in the abstract that are not supported by the data in their papers. So headlines and abstracts, and you always have to be sort of skeptical if it sounds, you know, too good to be true. Yeah, that's funny you mentioned that because in my experience, because I read a lot of papers for my work, if if there's a grand claim in the abstract, the chances are pretty good that the paper doesn't support them. And if the That's abstract right. is obtuse and it's hard to really comprehend the, the significance of the paper, the chances are they have 
not found what they were looking for. I see that all the time. Where that's like once you get into the study, I'm like, oh, that's why you were so vague up top, is because this is nothing, you know. That's exactly right. And sometimes they will actually even make claims that are just patently fraudulent in yeah. the paper. I've seen. I've got many papers that I've seen like this. Yeah, there's all sorts. But but I guess maybe this is what you're getting at is something similar will happen with news stories, and. That's not always malevolent because it is true that um, the people that write the articles you read online, they generally don't have control over the headlines. So, so right. for example, I've had I've had several jobs now where my where a big part of my work was writing headlines for you know five or ten articles a day, which is surprisingly more challenging than you would think. But in any case, it's very easy because you're trying to keep your workflow going. You can misstate something. Very, very simply, you know, and then people see it online yes. they go, well, what are you, how dare you, blah, 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 you know, so I, I can, I can sympathize to a certain extent with this, um, but what I've noticed, and then comment on this, please, is that the headlines never downplay a risk, right? They never accidentally say, oh, this is actually not that big of a deal, right? It's, it tends to be, there's a risk that you didn't know about, a uh, breakthrough infection, uh, stroke, blah, 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 like they always tend to push in the in the more dramatic direction you know what i'm saying exactly instead of saying oh my gosh isn't this the most wonderful right. thing right. <laughs> right yeah you know we've got food security in the west that's fantastic we you know <laughs> it's it, there's always something there's always something to, to to worry about make the population get very very scared about which is kind of interesting because i think this next paper or this next article is a little bit similar to that very similar, yeah. So let, let's talk about this last story, um, which is an interesting one. I think this might have been my favorite of all the all the ones we discussed. Mm-hmm. But this is a this is an opinion article by a bioethicist named uh, Art Kaplan, who's pretty pretty well mm-hmm. known. He's one of the in this field. He's one of the folks that reporters go to a lot for commentary. Um, but he's writing in Scientific American, and uh, story is called "Weight Loss Drug Boom Raises Host of Unaddressed Ethical and Scientific." Questions and the way he tackles this lies is pretty pretty striking. So he starts out by talking about Viagra, which of course is an erectile dysfunction mm-hmm. drug, um, and he's he's very very critical. And this is made by Pfizer as well, by the way. This and originally it was mm-hmm. it was it was commercialized by Pfizer. But he says, you know, once it was approved, it was marketed as an ED drug. Um, but then uh, apparently, and I'm not familiar with this, but but he claims that it was marketed aggressively beyond that that cohort beyond that because i i don't know how many people have ed but it's probably relatively small and so Mm -hmm. he says it started to be marketed to people who who you know i think he says something like they were going out on internet dates and they were just nervous right so these people started getting hold of this drug and and they're using it off label at that point because they don't have the medical condition it's meant to to treat and then you correct. Go, go ahead if you have something to add there about that that detail. Well, I'm not. Sure, I, I'm not sure that um, I would say that it was aggressively marketed to uh, you know people. And I will I, I will actually comment on drug direct drug marketing in just a minute. But um, I think that it was you know regular TV ads here and there, just like their TV ads for a whole lot of things. And and um, people were like, ooh. This is kind of fun, you know. <laughs> so I think I don't know that Pfizer went out and really, really 
went out of their way to market it to people. I think that there was, there's a demand for it. And I don't know that the, you know, I, I don't think that people should be using it off label because I think that it's uh uh, it, you know, it can cause problems. It can cause problems with, with people mixing their high blood pressure medicine, or if they've got ischemic heart disease and you give them a nitrate, they can, their blood pressure can completely bottom out. So, uh, it, it's, it's, you want to not use it off label, but that said, um, I think that there is a perceived demand for it. And I don't think that Pfizer honestly pushed it. I think that people got excited about it. Yeah. Pro- probably, you know, and, and I, I, there's the old joke of, you know, college kids take this and then they have to walk around for four hours with, uh, <laughs> <laughs> right? so I mean, just that all around there's, there's health risk. And then of course, you know, there's a bit of shame attached to walking around with, uh, <laughs> with that, yes. that particular, uh, with discomfort. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But in any case, this is how Dr. Kaplan sets up the story and he says, um, these weight loss drugs, and he's talking here about uh, Wegovy and Ozempic, and there's another one that that I think just came on the market or it's about to, but they all uh, basically work the same way. And so he says, this is going to be what Viagra was, but it's going to be orders of magnitude worse. So he says, and he's talking, basically what happened with these drugs is that in, in clinical trials, they were initially looking for uh treatments for type two diabetes. But what they realized is that mm-hmm. people lost a significant amount of weight. I think it, in, in the original uh, Ozempic trial, I think it was something like 15% of their body weight. Like, like it was substantial. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, they're going to say, well, wow, this is, this is potentially a whole new market and not necessarily in a cynical, harmful way. If you know, and, and he talks about this in the, in the, in the story, obesity is a major problem. You know, it's, it's close to a majority of the country is classified as obese technically. Um, so mm-hmm. one, once this was made clear and once the drug was approved, just like Viagra, apparently it was being used off label by TikTok influencers and celebrities. I think Oprah has come out as a major advocate for these drugs because she's lost a lot of weight and kept it off. Um, mm-hmm. Then he goes into a lot of uh, potential problems. And this is the, you know, the ethical and the scientific concerns. And here's the, here's the key quote. So he says, the drug alongside a cache of similar weight loss medications has become immensely popular over the last few, few years. The demand revealing cost issues, dubious marketing, questionable online sales, and failures to address the underlying causes of the disease. And there he means obesity. So we can, we can take these mm-hmm. in, in order, Liza. There's a, it seems to me there's a very interesting tension in in his his argument that is never resolved um but he mm-hmm. talks about cost and, and i i can understand that you know if the drug's so expensive that yep. most people can't afford it then what what good is it and then then maybe yep. there is i we'll get into this but he says you know if if people are overweight maybe they don't need a drug maybe they just need to change their lifestyle a little bit and then he talks about the marketing and this is interesting because this is a relatively new phenomenon. He talks about telehealth, you know, so you have doctors who mm-hmm. will see their patients online and it's not necessarily traditional healthcare providers. Sometimes it's their licensed physicians or psychiatrists or whatever, but you just go to an online website and see them and they can prescribe you drugs over the, over the internet. Mm-hmm. And so maybe there's some concern here. So that, that's the thrust of what he's talking about. Um, I'm very curious to get your take on, on all of his concerns. What do you think? Yeah, so um, I think once again, there's a kind of whole kind of oh, the drug companies are out promoting stuff that's that has 
potential side effects and it's going to be bad. Um, what I actually think of when I think of obesity and people who are morbidly obese um, often are not able to exercise. They, they physically cannot get out of their chairs to exercise. So getting them started on something like this is, I, I don't think is necessarily a bad thing. Curing somebody's type 2 diabetes with this kind of thing, right, because they've lost weight and they wind up with less insulin resistance when they lose fat, I think that that's a good thing. Um, I think if people have lots of visceral fat, that so you, you might have somebody who's got a lot of fat on the outside, but if you have lots of fat like surrounding your organs, you may look a little thinner, um, but you've got a significant risk for cardiovascular disease, cancer, those kinds of things. And it's much higher for people with visceral fat um, than, and they may look thinner than your organ, you know, your regular obese person. Um, I think this can address those people as well. Now, if you think about some of the interventions that we do for obesity, we do surgical procedures, gastric bypasses, lap bands, all of these things that have really, really significantly high price tags and potential for great surgical complications, right? So I think obesity is a problem. I think that yes, diet and exercise are very important. And I think that this should be one of the things in the armamentarium, because they've been on the market for a while, but in the armamentarium to help people lose weight. I don't think it's a bad thing for people to lose weight. I think it's, I think that that's a, that's a healthy thing. Now with the regards to the charge of pharmaceutical companies marketing, this is a very interesting um, kind of a feature of American life. We've got so many quirky things in this country. So for the past almost 25 years, I've watched medical schools diminish their teaching of pharmacology. So when I was in medical school, I had a year and a half of pharmacology. Um, when I got to my residency, medical students were now doing six weeks of pharmacology. Um, and the thought was that they would do system-based learning and on the wards, when they were rotating, they would learn from the, their attendings, the, the, the senior doctors, uh, what kinds of medicines to use in what kinds of situations. The problem is when you're on the wards, you are only ro rotating, for example, in cardiology. You're not rotating necessarily in cardiology, pulmonology, uh, gastroenterology. So you only will get like a slice of uh, uh, training in the pharmaceuticals that are used there. And not only are you doing that, you are not necessarily getting taught the mechanism of action of these, these medications. So there, there's been a lot of loss of understanding of basic understanding of pharmacology in, in medical training. And pharmaceutical companies previously were able to kind of offset that because they could send um, drug reps to academic programs to explain how different medications worked and what the studies were. That came to kind of a screeching halt in 2005 with the Vioxx debacle where, um, where uh, Merck had made a, um, an anti-inflammatory drug called Vioxx, uh, which was supposed to cause decreased GI bleeding because um, these, these medications um, it, with chronic use uh, can cause GI bleeds. And so uh, they developed uh, these COX-2 inhi inhibitors and they were supposed to decrease GI bleeds and they kind of do, um, but they didn't include in their data, uh, according to trial attorneys, um, 
uh, enough uh, discussion about the cardiovascular risk that was associated with it. And there was a, apparently an increased risk of uh, cardiac myocardial infarction in, in the patients who took it. So there was a big hoopla. They got taken off, it got taken off the market. And um, then academic programs felt like this had been ag aggressively marketed to, and, and to residents and academic programs. So they kind of put a halt to drug reps coming and talking to doctors. Well, what that led to then was that the advent of direct-to-consumer marketing. Um, so the, now the patient comes to the doctor and says, I've seen this on TV, and can you tell me about this drug? And oftentimes, oftentimes you can't because it's a trade name that you haven't heard of, and you don't know about it because you haven't heard about it, right? Because you've been so busy doing your work. So unfortunately, that's where we are with, um, with direct TV marketing. And I'm not a fan of direct TV, direct to TV patient marketing. I, I would much rather have the scientists in a company um, talking to academics and telling them how these drugs work. I'd like to see more pharma pharmacology classes being reintroduced into the medical school curriculum because it really does, uh, it's really important for training. And it, it's a, I think that that would mitigate a lot of this this um, angst that pharmaceutical companies are pushing uh, medications unnecessarily. That's a really interesting point. I'm glad you bring it up. And and I think, I could be wrong here, but I think that Arthur Kaplan doesn't quite understand how these drugs work. Because uh, mm -hmm. some of his criticism um, centers around the fact that, you know, you're not treating the underlying condition. You're not teaching people how to lead a healthier lifestyle. You're just sort of putting a Band-Aid on it and it's quick weight loss. Um, so that's one of the, the pillars of his critique here. But, I, but And again, you can talk more thoroughly about this. But, but basically what these drugs do is they help regulate your blood sugar by, by modulating the effect of, of two different hormones, I want to think, and, or I want to say. So you can, mm -hmm. you can explain that in more detail. But what's interesting about that is it actually has the impact of reducing your hunger. And, and, mm -hmm. and, there, and yes. there's been some interesting, let me just read this quote. This is from a New York Times journalist, and he's sort of pushing back on this typical criticism. And this was one of my thoughts originally, was that, you know, people should fix their diet and they should exercise more, which is true. But but I think this gets at why this is an important issue. So So this is from a New York Times story. The author says, it's hard to explain what life is like on this medication to people who don't have trouble controlling their weight. I'm not hungry all the time. I'm not thinking about food incessantly. I'm not obsessing about what I wish I could eat and what I can't. My mental health and even my temperament improved so much that my whole family rejoiced. So I, I think on, on his part that he seems to have misunderstood how the drugs work for the first thing. Mm -hmm. And I think he seems to have overlooked just how big of an impact obesity can have on people's lives. Yeah. So, so what are your thoughts there? Go ahead. So I, I think, once again, yes, it, it really does help um, uh, decrease appetite because it, it, it affects a hormone that winds up that winds up acting in the part of the brain that uh, that stimulates appetite. So it's 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 so there's that. And then, well, let's talk about diabetes real quick, just as a preface to this, and then we'll go there. So diabetes is really, there are two types. There's type one diabetes where you make an antibody to the beta islet cells in your pancreas. Um, and those, those cells are 
important for producing insulin. Insulin is like a key. It's a hormone. It's like a key that unlocks the door to the cells and lets glucose in. So if you've got type 1 diabetes, um, you have... You, you can't get glucose into the cells. And since you can't get glucose into the cells, you wind up having really a starvation syndrome. And they'll lose weight, they'll get real skinny. Um, and, and so these drugs don't, don't do that, don't affect that. Type 2 diabetes is a disease where you wind up having insulin resistance. So the insulin's not working really, really well. Um, and if it's not working really, really well, you have a harder time, um, you know, getting glucose into your cells. And so you've got a lot of glucose floating around and then that makes you sweet. And so since you're sweet, you wind up having at higher risk of of infections. You have higher risks of uh, uh, heart attacks because you you get sticky stuff and floating around in your blood and you get plaques and you can get kidney disease. It's a a whole variety of things. So you can take a couple of different uh, medications to, to fix that. Right. Um, and there are, uh, you can take insulin. Most people don't. Um, but you can take, uh, you can take medications that will help get the sh- sugar into the cell a little bit better. And then if you're getting the sugar into the cell a little bit better and, and you're not insulin resistant, um, you wind up, uh, you can, you can lose weight. Um, and so by modulating these different hormones, you're able to, uh, you're able to, uh, decrease your appetite. You're able to lose weight. You're able to to uh, utilize insulin better, or your glucose stores better, and that's that's kind of it. Yeah. So all that to say, at least on on my part, is that the, the, these drugs they seem to work by putting people in a in a place, I guess, physiologically, well, they where they can adhere to a diet and where they might be more inclined to exercise because they're not obsessing about why they can't have cupcakes or whatever. So, th- that's, so right. that's important. Now, now one, one qualification is that it, it appears based on the clinical data that you have to take it uh, weekly or you have to take it monthly and it has to be, I guess, long-term for the rest of your life. So th- that's yeah. a challenge. It's not a permanent fix in that sense. Well, so, uh, yeah. And I think that we've, I think that we've got to kind of see how long that lasts. Right. So some people gain weight back, but you know, th- once again, so this, the, the hormone that it mimics is GLP one, right. And it helps regulate glucose levels, but I don't know that go- going off the medicine is going to make you entirely rebound, uh, right away. One of the things you can't reverse with, with, um, surgery is, or one of the things you can't reverse is surgery and you can have long time, lifetime complications from surgery. So I, I think that in, in the balance of things, this is not as uh, drastic. Yeah, that's a very good point. Um, there's a few other things in his story. And, and I mean, we can talk about any of these in more detail, but you know, he seems really frustrated by the fact that obesity is this almost civilizational kind of problem because all of the developed world is mm-hmm. is impacted by it. So he says it's a real problem that we need a viable treatment for. But then now that we have viable treatments, he seems mad that we have them. And and so right. it's like so it's like <laughs> we need to treat this, we need effective drugs. We have one, but now that's bad too because people are gonna use it. I, I you know what I mean? So so there's that and then he says, you know, there was a shortage initially because the drug was approved and it was primarily aimed at type two diabetics, um, but but it mm-hmm. was used by celebrities and it was pushed as a result of that. So you had a shortage of it. So he was mad that there was a shortage, but now he's mad that it's being used in mass and that it's really easy to prescribe. 
And so, you know what I mean? So this is the tension I was getting at. It's like, it's, you, you can't win either way if you are. You can't win either way. Now, these drugs do have side effects, right? So they've got nausea, vomiting, diarrhea. Lots of people get diarrhea. So if you're scanning and you're getting a lot of diarrhea, you're not going to do this. <laughs> so I, I, don't, I don't think that there's going to be. And then there's, there are some serious side effects that, you know, pancreatitis is one of the serious side effects that you worry about. But um, so I, I, once again, I think that obesity is a problem. This is less of a drastic uh, move that, uh, than gastric bypass surgery. It's a huge operation, right? Um, and I think that you're right. I think that you can't win for losing. Yeah, it was just, it was frustrating to read it, you know, because... You, mm-hmm. you you present the problem and then there's a solution, but you're also not happy. Like like what would a drug have to do for for someone of this perspective to be satisfied? I I don't I don't quite get it because because you want the treatments for a real serious problem, whether or not it's a disease is probably a discussion for another day. But you want you want a treatment for this, but then you want people to to treat the underlying causes. Um. So what, right. like, what do you, what do you, <laughs> what do you, and, and, and well, and if you've got a really obese person who really can't get started exercising, right, because of the, because they can't get out of a chair, you're talking about getting somebody down to a weight where they can start doing the exercise themselves and stuff and, and things like that. So I think, I don't think it is a silver bullet, um, but I do think it can help people get on the way. And I think that since obesity is a real problem. Um, and, and fatty liver disease is a real problem too. Uh, and that can cause, you know, that can cause cirrhosis and all sorts of stuff. And it t- turns around that as well. So I think, uh, I think I'm, I'm of the hopeful, optimistic, um, persuasion that this, this might be a really good tool to have in our armamentarium to improve public health. Um, there may be side effects later on that we don't know about. We'll have to wait and see, but it's been around for a while for the treatment of type two diabetes. And I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic. Yes. Yeah. And, and I mean, there, there are, because uh, he talks about, you know, what are the side effects? How is it going to affect kids? How expensive is it going to be? You know, but we have, we have certain solutions to this, right? So, so like they mm-hmm. have to be prescribed by doctors for one thing. Um, you have mm-hmm. an, an FDA that has approved the drugs. And then I think for Ozempic, I don't know if it's for w- Wagovi as well, but for Ozempic, it has a black box label because of the real, they're, mm-hmm. they're pretty rare is my understanding, but there are severe side effects yes. so there can be. So the FDA is watching this very carefully. Very, very carefully. Yes. And I think that that's important to take away too. In terms of doctors prescribing these drugs, nowadays in the U.S., they were t- talking about telehealth and the doctor's being pushed to prescribe these drugs. Nowadays, it is very, very difficult to get into the doctor, right? And so I have no problem with getting access to physicians um, more quickly to get diseases treated, you know? And I think that, so if, if it happens to be a telehealth doctor that's prescribing this medication and he's telling the patient about the risks and benefits of the medication, I don't have a huge problem with that. Yeah, the other podcast I do with a colleague of mine named Dr. Chuck Dinnerstein, who I've mentioned before, he's a retired vascular surgeon, real, real sharp guy. Um, but but I was I was throwing some of these objections at him because I, I guess I originally mm-hmm. sort of took the perspective that Arthur Kaplan takes, and I was like, you know, people just need to fix their lifestyle. And I, and Chuck's response was, uh, well, so what? Like like it works, you know. And I was and I remember saying, you know, they're they're basically taking a shortcut. And he said, so what mm-hmm. it, it like, if, if it helps type two diabetics, um, 
not going to shock and it, you know, like they don't need as much insulin or they can maybe get off there. If they don't get amputations, right. they get, so they, 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 they get nerve damage because their sugar's so right. high. Right. And they lose feeling in their feet and then they step on something. They don't know it's in their foot and they wind up with huge infections, a- amputations, blindness, all sorts of stuff goes on with type two diabetes. If this is if this can fix that, I'm all for it. And and that's a that's an interesting point as we wrap up here that I wanted to make is I've the 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 few conversations I've had with people about this, the people that treat sick people for a living are more uh, sympathetic, I think, because they see what sickness really looks like up close, and not like I've got a stuffy nose, but like I might have to cut your arm off because of your type. You know, yeah. like people that deal with that for a living. They they seem to understand that there's a there's value in drugs like this, whereas whereas the people mm-hmm. that get paid by taxpayers to think thoughts and write profound papers mm-hmm. in journals that nobody reads, they seem to have this sort of grand plan that they if if only the stupid rubes out in the world would just agree to it, it would work. You know you know what I mean? And I, no no, no exactly. disrespect to Arthur Kaplan. I'm sure he's a nice guy. Yes. I'd probably have a beer with him, but. There, there's just sort of a, there's a disconnect. It's, we've talked about it before. There's just this weird disconnect sometimes be, between the academy and between the front lines of medicine and what normal people experience. Mm-hmm. So maybe, I, I, I don't know, maybe, maybe we just need to consider how things are going to work in the real world before we start talking about, you know, the drug's too expensive, but everyone's getting it and it works really well, but it doesn't work enough. It's, you know, it's like just. and when everybody's getting it then the price is going to go down right and he mentioned that too he's like it's not going down enough so you can't win for losing yeah yeah so anyways it's it's an interesting story and there are there they're the legitimate concerns but i I, you know the thing is is that we know what we know about these because we have the clinical research that's been done so there were the trials that you have to do for fda to approved your drug but then there's subsequently there's been other clinical data that's that's come in you know so all, all the stuff he's complaining about he knows because people have studied the drugs <laughs> right it's pharmacovigilance so that people follow the, the you know beyond the, the clinical trials they keep track of rare side effects yeah well there you go if you wanted a little breakdown of how those how those drugs work it seems like they have some value for some people and that's awesome it sure does yep okay well everyone thank you so much for joining us as always have a lovely week if your team won the super bowl congrats if your team lost i'm sorry yeah it's not that big of a deal you still got to go to work (laughs) and raise your kids and life's going to go on so you know don't be Uh don't be too bummed (laughs) yeah don't be too bummed tomorrow's another day there you go pick up a (laughs) hobby stop watching people throw the ball around go uh Learn, learn an instrument or something. <laughs> All right, follow us on on social media. We're on X. It's at Dr. Liza MD at Cam J English. The Genetic Literacy Project is at Genetic Literacy. Follow them because they put the show on for us. It's all their content we discuss. And with that, we'll see you next time. Goodbye. Yeah,